John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. And in John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47, we're going to have the five witnesses to Christ. Now, as a matter of fact, there are seven witnesses to Christ in the Gospel of John. Seven witnesses to Christ. There's a witness of the, of the triune God, witness of the Father, number one, the witness of the Son, number two, to, his own, to himself, the witness of the Holy Spirit, number three, the witness of his works, miracles, number four, the witness of John the Baptist, number five, the witness of the Old Testament scriptures, number six, and the witness of personal experience, the witness of Andrew and Peter, so on down the line. Seven witnesses. Now we have five of them here in John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. Witness is one of the key words of the Gospel of John. The, the noun and the verb. The noun is martyria and the verb is martyrao. Together, those two words, the word for witness, occurs 47 times in the Gospel of John. Now, it, those two words together in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, occur either six or seven times. That's all. In three gospels, witness only occurs about six or seven times. In the gospel of John, it occurs 47 times. So it's one of the key words in the gospel of John, witness, witness. One of the key words, and there's seven witnesses. Witness is important. It carries with it a legal error. Testimony is required to substantiate truth. We bring men into the witness box to serve as character witnesses. I had to serve as a character witness here about uh, four weeks ago, a character witness. And afterwards, the man lost the case. <laughs> no, he didn't. He won the case. But, you know, we have character witnesses. We bring them to the box to give their testimony. Witness commits the man. If one takes a stand in the witness box, he is no longer neutral. One of the key words of the Gospel of John is the word witness. Now, there are five witnesses in John 5, 31 to 47. There are seven altogether, but there are five here. The first one, let's look at them, and then we're going to look at them individually. Number one, John chapter 5, 32, 31 and 32. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, who is that another? That's the Father. So, verse 32, we have the witness of the Father. Now, in verse 33, we have the witness of John the Baptist. You sent unto John, and he bore witness unto the truth. He just called him John, didn't he? Why didn't he just call him John? Because the author was John, of this gospel is John, and to the author of the gospel, there's only one real John that stands out, and that's John the Baptist. Other, this is one of those little uh, a kind of asides that demonstrate that the apostle John's the author. Whenever he, the apostle John... Whenever Matthew speaks about John, he calls him John the Baptizer. But when the Apostle John speaks about John the Baptist, he just calls him John. For him, there is but one John, and that's John the Baptist. See? He himself is nothing, the writer. 
So he, here's the witness of John the Baptist. And then in verse 36, we have a third witness. What is that witness? I have greater witness than that of John for the works, the works which the Father gave me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me. The works are his miracles. So that's the third witness to Christ. And then in verse 37, we have once again repeated the witness of the Father. The Father himself who has sent me hath borne witness of me. And then verse 39, we have the fourth witness. What is that? Old Testament Scripture. Old Testament Scripture. That's the fourth witness. Old Testament Scripture. And then the fifth witness, which is an extension of the Scriptures. The fifth witness is in 45, 46, 47. Who is that? Moses. In the Pentateuch, the first five books. So we have five witnesses here, and the fifth one is simply an extension of the fourth. Number one, the witness of the Father. Number two, the witness of John the Baptist. Number three, the witness of the works. Number four, the witness of prophecy. And number five, the witness of Moses. Witness of Old Testament prophecy and the witness of Moses. Now, I want you to look up here. In a certain sense, all of these are extensions of the witness of the Father. All of these are extensions of the witness of God the Father. The Father witnesses, and I'm anticipating myself here. The Father witnesses. Now, when John speaks of the Father witnessing, he's not talking about the voice that came from heaven at the baptism. He's talking about three things. First of all, the Father witnessed through John the Baptist. Secondly, the Father witnessed through the works of Jesus. Jesus said, my Father gave me those works. My Father gave me those miracles to do. And then third, the Father witnessed to Jesus through the Old Testament Scripture. So in a sense, all of these witnesses, John 5, a witness of the Father. This is the witness of the prophetic word, the last great Old Testament prophecy, John. The works, the miracles, are the witness of the acted word. And the witness of Scripture is the witness of the written word, the Old Testament. But all of these are forms of the Father's witness, as we shall see in a few minutes. Now let's look at these five witnesses. That's what you have on the outline, is it not? Look under the five witnesses to Christ. Who's the first one? The witness of who? The Father. Verse 31, 32, and 37. Who's the second one? John the Baptist, the third one. Christ's works, the fourth one. Scripture. And the fifth one, Moses. And Moses is an extension of number four. The Old Testament Scripture. All right, now let's look at these. First one is the witness of the Father, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There's another that bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, what did the Lord mean when he said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true? Well, that's normally taken, explained in this fashion. That the Old Testament, according to the law set forth in the book of Deuteronomy, 
every testimony, every claim had to be supported by two witnesses. That was the Old Testament Mosaic Law. Every claim had to be supported by two witnesses. So what Jesus is saying here, if I witness by myself, my witness is not true in the sense it's not valid. I need somebody else. But I don't think that's what the Lord is talking about here. I think that the Lord is, what we have here is the context of the subject of unity. My Father and I are one, unity. And the theme here is the unity of the Son with the Father. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is, if my witness and claim to unity with the Father is alone, by itself, no one else, I make it by myself, and unsupported by the Father, then it's not true. By the very nature of the claim, I am one with the Father, unity. By the very nature of the claim, the other person, the Father, is going to have to support Jesus. Who else could testify to the unity of the Son with the Father? Only the Father could. Works couldn't. John the Baptist couldn't. He's not up in heaven. Nothing else could. The only one that could support the claim of Jesus to unity is my Father. And if my testimony stands alone and he doesn't support it, then you can take it, Jesus is saying, you can take it to be not true. But, verse 32, as a matter of fact, my witness is not alone, verse 32, because who is witness to me? The Father. The Father is witness to me. Yes, the Father is supported by that word another, in verse 3, there's another that bears witness to me. That's not John the Baptist. That another ought to be spelt with a capital A. That another is God the Father. And Jesus said, I know his witness is true. That may not be enough for you, Jesus said, but it's enough for me. It's enough for me. That gives me confidence to know that my Father. Now, where is the Father's witness. Does your Bible say in verse 32 that the Father, verse 32, there's another that bears witness to me. That's the Father. Verse 37, and the Father himself who has sent me hath borne witness of me. Now what is the witness of the Father? Well, it's not the voice that came out of heaven at the baptismal scene. The voice did come out of heaven at the baptismal scene, but that's not it. Why is that not it? Because Jesus saying, is saying, this witness I'm talking about is a witness to you. And they weren't there at the baptismal scene. And they didn't hear that voice. So he's not talking about the voice that spoke at the baptismal scene. What is the witness of the Father? Right there. The witness of the Father is mediated through John the Baptist. That's the prophetic word, the word, the witness of the last Old Testament prophet. Secondly, the Father witnesses through the works of Jesus. Look at verse 36. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works... Now, what's the next statement in verse 36? The works which the Father has given me to do. So the works that Jesus did, the miracles of Jesus, are another way that the Father witnesses to the unity and equality of his son with himself. The unity and the equality of the son with the father. 
Then the third witness is the witness of the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. The Father is also witness to that. And that's the written word. We have the prophetic word, John the Baptist. We have the acted word, the miracles. And we have the written word, the Old Testament. And that's the witness of the Father. So the first one we have is the witness of the Father. And that's all that Jesus needed. He didn't need any else. That's all that he needed. And that's the whole thrust of the next thing. Now the next one is the witness of John the Baptist. Verses 33 to 35. You sent unto John. You sent what unto John? Remember? They sent an embassy unto John. John chapter 1 verse 19. They sent an embassy from Jerusalem up to John. You sent an embassy up to John. And John bore witness unto the truth. He bore witness. If your minds are open, Jesus is saying in effect, your minds are open, you had a witness. His witness was clear and powerful. Had you received that witness, then you had been ready for the Father's witness. But instead, you rejected it. Now he says in verse 34, but I received not testimony for men. What Jesus means there is, I don't need John's testimony. Who did need it? Verse 34. You needed it in order to be saved. But I didn't need it. Whose testimony? I had somebody else's testimony. And that's all I needed. Now, whose is that testimony at? Father. That's enough for me. I didn't need John. But the Father accommodated himself to your weakness. And he sent to you John. And if you listened to him, you would have been saved. His witness sent by God, but I didn't need it. Then, not only does he tell what John, what Jesus, John thought of Jesus, but verse 35, he tells us what Jesus thought of John. Verse 35, beautiful testament. He was a burning and shining light. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. He was a burning he was the burning and shining light. You got an A in your King James, and so do I. But in the Greek, there's a definite article. He was the burning and shining lamb. The, that is the one predicted in the Old Testament. And the word light is not light. It's the word that's used for lamb. There's a word that's used for light, P-H-O-S. We get phosphorus from it. P-H-O-S. And... Um, but that's not the word. The word here is lukdom, which means a lamp. A lamp, a light is underived. A lamp possesses derived light. It gets the light from something else. And Jesus said of John that he was a lamp, not a light. That is, that is, he, he, only Christ is a light, and the light that John had was derived from the Lord Jesus. Then he uses two qualities. What kind of a lamp is it? Burning, shining. Burning, shining. Burning. Perhaps he means he's burning out. Speaks of the costliness. Well, that's probably not what he means. The word, the word that's used here, the verb means to kindle, to set on fire, to kindle. And what, what he's saying is that John's lamp is not self sufficient, as Jesus was. His must be kindled from on high. That's what he means. 
His must be kindled from on high, as every true preacher of the gospel must experience. John didn't have light himself. Jesus did. But John didn't. He must be kindled from on high. And that's the meaning of the word burden. Kindled. He was a kindled. K-I-N-D-L-E-D. He was a kindled lamp. He was set on fire from high. And then the second word he uses is the word shining. By the word shining, he means that his light was given out steady and unwavering. John's testimony to Jesus was a steady and unwavering testimony. And then he said, verse 35, and you are willing for, for a season to rejoice in. See, long as you thought that John was a member of your fraternity, yeah, he got along all right. But one day, one day they went out there and uh, to where John was preaching. You remember what he said? You generation of vipers, snakes. <laughs> you generation of snakes, you vipers. You vipers. Bring forth fruit, meat for proving repentance. You say you repented, then let your life demonstrate it. And when you do that, then I'll baptize you. Think of this man's, is the word effrontery? Think of this man's effrontery to stand up and tell these Ph.D. rabbis that they're a generation of snakes and they're going to put off the baptism. What about that soldier? Well, I'll baptize him right away. What about that, that person over there? I'll baptize him right away. What about that lady? I'll baptize her right away. How about us? We're religious leaders. Now, we're going to wait a few days on you to see, to see if your life demonstrates your reality. He put them off. And I'll tell you, they didn't rejoice very long. How long did you say? For a season, yeah. For just a little season. And then they got tough with him and hounded him. And how true that is, whether it's the prophets or whether it's John or whether it's Jesus. Number three witness, the worst, verse 36. But I have greater witness than that of John. John's witness was great, but I have a greater witness. Verse 36, the works. Verse 37, the Father. Verse 36, but I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me. What is the intent of those works? That the Father sent me. The Father sent me. So here's the witness of Jesus' works. Now, what are those works? Well, they're miracles. Remember when we studied this back at the beginning, we said that John used a special word for miracles. It's the Greek word semeon, which means a sign. And a sign points to something. Points to something. And the miracles of Jesus pointed to the deity of Christ. They were signs. Another word for miracles means wonder. They're called wonders. That's the effect of the miracle. Now, the word for miracles is dunamis, power, which speaks of the, of the strength, the power, the supernatural power needed to do them. But John uses this word, signs, because they pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, what were those signs? What were their miracles? They were Jesus' credentials. They were Jesus' credentials. And they were credentials that the Father had sent him. 
when Jesus came into this world, the Father gave Jesus his credentials. Just like uh, uh, our president gives the ambassador to the court of St. James his credentials. And when he uh, stops there, he, he shows them his credentials. Or just as a policeman that knocks at the door and wants to interrogate him, has to take out his credentials and show them to us. So God gave to Jesus his credentials. What were those credentials? His miracles, raising men from the dead, healing, unstopping deaf ears, and opening blind eyes, and healing an infirm man with that infirmity of 37 years. They were the Father's credentials. And what were they intended to do? To show that the Father had sent the Son. They were intended to show the Father had sent the Son. The miracles of Jesus. Now, are you listening to me? The miracles of Jesus were not intended primarily to relieve human suffering. They did that. But if Jesus performed miracles primarily to relieve human suffering, then why didn't he heal more people? How many men and women were around that pool of Bethsaida when this man was healed? How many? How many do you think? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe thousands, at least 50 or 60. 50 or 60 people around it. How many did Jesus heal? Just one. Why? Because the miracles of Jesus were not intended primarily to relieve human suffering. They did relieve human suffering, but that wasn't their intention. What was the primary purpose of the miracles of Jesus? They were his credentials. They authenticated what he said. He spoke. And when he spoke, he claimed to speak the words of God. What I say, God said. And God authenticated the words of Jesus by enabling him to raise the dead. Now, I don't believe Anybody today is speaking word for word the words of God. I don't think there are any prophets in that sense today. I think God finished speaking directly with Revelation chapter 22. I don't think God is speaking to anybody today directly. Now, I hope you hear me right. I do believe that God is using a lot of men. That's not what I'm talking about. I do think that God is working through a lot of men. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a man who stands up, and when he speaks, what he says is literally and actually word for word what God said. Nobody's doing that. Why? Because God finished his revelation, is, is revealing himself by the end of the New Testament. Now, if God is not speaking directly, if God is now silent, and he is, then we don't need credentials. And that's why I don't believe in any divine healers. There are divine healings, but not divine healers. See? Can God heal a man of an advanced cancer? Yes. If he's pleased to, yes. Can God heal a person that has a, a malignancy upon which the doctors have given up? Yes, if he's pleased to. Who would want to limit the supernatural power of God? If God is pleased to, he will. In most cases, he is not pleased to. 
But if he's pleased to in the case, certainly he can do it. But when God heals him, that doesn't authenticate the doctor as a spokesman for God. Because as a matter of fact, the doctor may be an atheist. Does God use atheist doctors? You bet he does. That's the doctrine of common grace. See? That, and I mean, God can use an atheist auto mechanic. And he used an atheist home builder. And he may be a moral man that builds a good home. So God can use these in his common grace. And he may be pleased to use these men in his common grace without putting his approval on what they believe. How many of the scientific experiments that bless us were discovered by agnostics? A whole lot of them. And yet we use them. And we thank God. Why? Because we believe that God gave whatever may be the state of man. God gave that man, whoever he might be, the wisdom and the power to do it. Even if he's an unbeliever, God gave it to him. Or else I'm driven to the point that that, that man got his wisdom from something else. God is the author of everything that's good in this world. And if a man that's an unbeliever found a vaccine for polio, and a man who was a uh, Jew did so, I don't know what the state was, but we used what he found it. And we thank God that somebody was given in God's providence the ability to discover that. We thank God. So that whatever man does, whatever man does, it goes back to God without approving the theology of the man. So if God is pleased to cure a man of a fatal, of an almost fatal illness, fine. Most cases he is not pleased to do it. Most cases he takes him home. But if in some cases he's pleased to, fine, God can. But that doesn't authenticate anybody. The miracles of Jesus did. They authenticated Jesus. They were his credentials. They were sent by God. So the works. Number four, the fourth witness. The fourth witness. We have the witness of the Father once again in verse uh, verse 37 and 38. Now, we've had that once already it in verse 32. It comes up here again. Look at verse 37 and 38. And the Father himself who has sent me hath borne witness of me. The Father's borne witness of me. Well, primarily, what does he have in mind in the context? How has the Father witnessed? Well, look at verse 39. How is he witnessed? Through the Old Testament scripture, he's witnessed to Jesus. The Father himself who has sent me has past tense. In fact, this is the perfect tense. And the perfect tense in Greek means something that took place way back yonder, but its effects are still felt today. The Father has spoken in the prophets way back yonder, but it's still good today. He's still speaking to them today. Now, here's a very severe indictment that Jesus levels against them at this point. Notice, three-fold indictment. You look at it in the Bible, not at my face. Verse 37. Father himself who sent me has borne witness of me. Number one, you have neither heard his voice at any time. Number two, you have not seen his shade. Number three, you have not his word abiding in you. There's a severe threefold indictment, a threefold indictment of their willful ignorance. You have, number one, 
you have not heard his voice at any time. Well, had they heard his voice? Had they? Yes. When Jesus spoke, they heard his voice. But they didn't hear it in the sense they didn't believe it. They heard his voice. God spoke, spoke in Jesus. They had it, but they didn't believe it. They turned deaf ears to it. They didn't receive it. So it didn't help them any. Secondly, what else have they not received? You haven't heard his voice at any time? You haven't seen his what? Had they? Yes, if they had eyes, they could. Why? John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. Philip said, Lord, John 14, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Boy, I went 20 years without thinking, what does that sufficeth mean? Hard enough to pronounce, let alone. <laughs> it's 10 years to pronounce, 20 years to find out what it meant. Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. It is sufficient for us. What did Jesus say? Philip, have I been so long time with you? He that has seen me has seen the Father. You have not seen his shape. You've not seen God visibly. If you opened your eyes and believed, you would. But you wouldn't do it. You could have seen God in Jesus, but you didn't do it. You wouldn't open your eyes. You wouldn't open your ears. You turn deaf ears and blind eyes to all that God has done. And that's why you haven't heard him, you haven't seen him. He was there, but you didn't hear, you didn't see. What's the third indictment? Yeah, my father's word, verse 38, you have not his word abiding in you. Have not his word abiding in you. The word abiding means there that it's not a living power in your soul. It has the permanent influence on your life. What did the psalmist said? Thy word have I hid in mine heart. What's the result of hiding God's word? Not, not in the head, in the heart. That means the center of the man. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? It has a permanent influence. It has a living, powerful influence on my life and on my soul. He said, my word, my father's word, does not abide in you. And the evidence of it, that my father's word does not abide in you, what is the middle word in verse 37, 38? What is the word right after the semicolon? For, yeah, for, tells the reason. Tell, it gives the evidence. You don't have God's word abiding in you as a living power. And the evidence is, is this, that whom the Father sent, you haven't what? That's the evidence. If you had God's word abiding in you, the evidence of it is you'd embrace me. Why? Because the, he's talking about the Old Testament scripture. The word of God, the Old Testament scripture, pointed to Jesus. If that word abode in your heart and you had embraced it and believed it, then you would have embraced the one to whom the Scripture pointed. Studying the Scriptures, you will earn eternal life. What was the mistake of the Pharisees? In them, in studying them, you think you have eternal life. You think that in studying the Scriptures, you will have eternal life. So you're meticulous in the study. They suppose 
They made a mistake there. It's a very common mistake everywhere we go. And it's a common mistake in the South, and it's a common mistake in Memphis, the Bible Belt. And that is, they suppose that a knowledge of the Scriptures was enough to ensure their salvation. They made a mistake to think that a knowledge of the Scriptures will ensure their salvation. And it never will, never has, never will. A man can be a profound student of the Scriptures and be lost. One of the finest treatments on John Calvin's doctrine of the substitutionary atonement was written by a man who was one of the five leading God-is-dead theologians of the 60s. Now, that theology has been buried, and God is still living, uh, surprisingly. Well, one of the five leading, one of the five leading theologians promoting the idea, Van Buren is his name, for, for, uh, promote the idea that God is dead. That is, he's called, what they like to call themselves, Christian atheists. Christian atheists, that's the term they use for themselves. Christian atheists believe that God is dead. And yet this man wrote a very fine treatise on John Calvin's doctrine of vicarious atonement. A man can be a solid student of the Scriptures. And um, I remember uh, one of the Hebrew professors, uh, he came to Dallas after I did, taught Hebrew. And uh, he's no longer there. He's up at Regent College. But uh, he studied a year with a renowned Jewish Hebrew scholar in Jerusalem. Studied for a year. Used to go over his apartment at night to study the Old Testament. That man had memorized the Old Testament Hebrew. That man knew it all by memory, the Hebrew Old Testament. That man, he said, I could virtually ask him any question. He'd come up with an answer. But he was an atheist. An atheist. Held a university position. A knowledge of the scriptures will not ensure my salvation. I come to Mid-South Bible College and get to know the Bible and be lost. I go to Dallas Seminary, know the Bible, be lost. And a lot of our scholarly texts, some of our scholarly texts, on the Bible today are written by men, by men, whom I am sure, I mean, from what they say in the, in, the, in the books, cannot be Christian because they deny the deity of Jesus. But I tell you something, at the same time, they can expound the scriptures. That's strange, isn't it? A lot of times they'll do a better job of interpreting verses and expounding the scriptures than the normal conservative. And yet, they don't believe it. They don't believe in the deity of Jesus. They deny his deity. They made the mistake here of supposing the knowledge of the scriptures was enough to ensure a man's salvation. You remember what Jesus had to say about that? You ever read that awesome passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He said that many of you are going to come to me in that day and say, Lord, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Jesus will say, depart from me. I never, not saved. So a man can know the Bible well and be lost. What's the proper use of the scripture? Verse 39. 
to see Christ in them. There they would testify of me. Now, Jesus is going to put his finger on the real problem with these men. Jesus is going to put his finger on the real problem of these men. It's a double problem. Why don't they come to Christ? Verse 40, you will not come to me that you might have life. You know where he puts it? You will not come to me. It's a matter of unwillingness to come to Christ. They won't come to Christ. They exercise their will against Christ. You will not come to me. Why does he say, you're not a member of the elect, so you don't come to me? No, he didn't. Now, I believe in election, predestination. But Jesus said here, the reason you're lost and the Bible hasn't helped you is you will not come to me. They exercise their wills in refusing to come to Christ. Now, why would they not come to Jesus? Why would they not come to Jesus? Well, don't look at my face. See, it's given two verses. You got it. Two reasons. Number one is in verse 42. Why don't they come to Jesus? They don't have the what? Love for God. The love of God means the love for God. They have no love for God and no love for holiness of life. And no love for a change in life. And no love for the things of God. And since they have no love for God and the things of God, they don't come to Jesus. What's the second reason they don't come to Jesus Christ? And a man doesn't come to Christ today. The verse 44. How can you believe, you who are always looking around to get the applause and the glory and the praise of one another, and you don't care anything about the praise and the applause of God himself? Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about what we call today peer pressure. Peer pressure. If a man trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, he's going to take on the offense of the cross. Man's working down at work. There are 30 guys down there. They're all obscene in their language, and they tell dirty jokes. One day, one of them gets saved. One of them gets saved, and a few days later, opportunity affords itself, and that man gets out and flies his colors and gives a testimony that he's now a Christian. You know what that does? Number one, that's like grit. That's like um, the thistle under the, under the saddle. His life is a condemnation to the other man. See, you know what they begin to do? They begin to work him over. They laugh at him, and they ridicule him, and that gets tough. You don't like that. So man says, well, I'll quit and go and get another job. No, no, you ought not to do that. God left you there to be a witness. If you don't stay there, who's going to witness to those men? Don't run off and get another job. God left you there to witness. To make fun of you. None of us like to be made fun of, do we? No, none of us. We're honest. The only person that we feel can make fun of us is the guy we see in the mirror. See? But nobody else. We're real sensitive. We don't like that. What do we all like? We all like the approval of the crowd. Peer pressure. So Jesus said, you don't come to me. Why? Because you'd rather have the approval of men than the approval of God. 
You'd rather have the applause of them, the applause of God. Out here is the academic gallery of all the scholars. He was talking to the rabbis here. And out here is all the academic gallery. You come to me, you're going to lose the applause of the academic gallery. So you're not going to stand in well. There was a man who didn't stand too well, who was the top man, but he lost his position. And they looked down on him. You know who it was, don't you, Paul? Paul was a brilliant man. He had advanced in Judaism above any in his age. But when he became a Christian, he burned his bridges. His family repudiated him. And so did the scholars. And I want to tell you something. Academic peer pressure is a terrible thing. Academic peer pressure is a terrible thing. And I believe, my own personal opinion, is this, that a seminary, a seminary, or a Christian school begins to go wrong and down the toboggan when the board says, and the president, the president of the board says, we need to have a little academic muscle around here. We need to get some PhDs from German universities. Well, we get one. And he doesn't hold the verbal inspiration. And he may not hold to the virgin birth, but all the rest of us will keep him in line. But that's not the way it works. This man comes on, and he's brilliant. And he attracts the students, and they go after him. And it's not long before the school is on the toboggan. And that's happened dozens of times in America, the theological seminaries and Christian universities. Academic peer pressure is a terrible thing. It's an awesome thing. If a man doesn't play to the academic gallery, then he doesn't move up. And he doesn't get published what he wants to get published. And he may be the finest scientist, but if he's a creationist, he's going to have a hard time finding a position in an outstanding university, although he may be outstanding himself, academic prayer pressure. And Jesus said, you don't come to me for two reasons. Number one, you don't love God, and you don't want to be holy, and you love your sin, and therefore you don't come to me. The second reason is you rather have the approval of men now than the approval of God in the next life, in this life as well. What was their problem? Not lack of evidence. Not lack of knowledge. Lack of willingness to come to Christ. I, you know, we speak about a man having academic problems with the Christian faith. I doubt that. I doubt that. And the Bible says no. The problems that a man has are moral problems, not academic. man says, I have an academic problem. I say, what is her name? See? And that's most of the time. It's something not academic, moral, unwillingness. Not lack of evidence, lack of willingness to come to Christ. Then we close out verse 45, 47, the testimony of Moses. Do not think that I'll accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how 
shall you believe my word? I'll be the judge. Moses will be the accuser. How come Moses? For two reasons. Number one, Moses pointed to Christ. All through the Pentateuch, Moses pointed to Christ. But you won't, you won't believe the object to whom Moses pointed. Therefore, you repudiate Secondly, Moses gave the law to kill you, to condemn you. You're using it as the way of salvation. So I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to accuse I'll be the judge. Moses will be the accuser. And the last day, Moses will accuse you because you repudiated what he said. Well, here's a great passage. Here's a great passage. And uh, I'm not going to make any conclusion to this. Except to say this, faith is action based on the sufficiency of the evidence. The evidence is never 100%. Now, are you listening to me? The evidence is never 100%. If a man doesn't want to believe, he can find a loophole to slip out of. The evidence is sufficient. It's not absolute. You say, why didn't God make the evidence absolute? Why doesn't God just drop Jesus right down here and raise half the people out in the cemetery, and then we'd all believe? Why doesn't he do that? You know why he doesn't do that? Then faith wouldn't be a moral act. Faith is an act of the will. But if God gets me by the scruff of the neck and pulls me in, that's not a moral act. And faith is a moral act. It's the act of the will of a free will. And therefore, God's evidence is more than sufficient. But if a man wants it, he wants to disbelieve, he can always find a loophole to get out of it. Therefore, we learn that the reason men don't believe is because of lack of evidence. Bertrand Russell probably was probably the most celebrated atheist in the last hundred years. He was a brilliant man. He's wrote, written many books, many, many books. Uh, and a lot of things he said were good. He said one time, I've never known a perfectly balanced person who ever made a lasting contribution to life. And I agree with him on that. Everybody's running around to be perfectly balanced. He said a perfectly balanced man, perfectly balanced, never made a contribution to life. He was an atheist. The man said to Mr. Bertrand Russell one day, Bertrand Russell, he said, Mr. Russell, supposing you die, and he died a couple of years ago at the age of 93, supposing you die and you discover there is a God, what are you going to say to God? Bertrand Russell said, God, I'm going to say, God, you didn't give me enough evidence. But that's not true. The evidence for the existence of God, the deity of Jesus, is far greater than the evidence against. The evidence is sufficient, more than sufficient. But the man that doesn't want to believe will always be able to find a loophole to get out of it. And the reason is, is that faith is a moral act. Man wants to be saved, is going to be saved. And the man that doesn't want to be saved and doesn't want a holy life is going to find a loophole to get out of it. 
next time, John chapter 6.